Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is the Norman Invasion Part 15, The Conquest of Munster. By May 1177, the Normans had already conquered Leinster, Mead and Eastern Ulster, when King Henry II further granted the kingdoms of Desmond and Thomond in Munster to some of his liegemen. This signalled the beginning of a new wave of conquest in Ireland and what became the enthralling Norman conquest of the southwest of Ireland. In telling this story, this episode is going to take a slightly different approach from previous shows. Many of you have pointed out in feedback that the series of the invasion heavily focuses on the Norman perspective. This is true and is largely reflective of the sources available to me. In this show, I have tried to make some address and look at the events from a Gaelic perspective. The Gaelic reaction to the invasion of Munster is pretty unusual and definitely not what we might expect. To understand this, we need to look back at life in Munster in the previous decades to see what made people tick and why they reacted to the Normans in the way they did. This brings us deep into the world of blood feuds in medieval Ireland, a story that is not for the faint-hearted. By May 1177, Diarmid McCarthy, the King of South Munster, known in the medieval period as the Kingdom of Desmond, was a survivor if nothing else. Diarmid had navigated his way through the upheaval of the Norman invasion so far, but more importantly to him, he had also survived a ruthless feud. You see, Diarmid had been born long before the invasion and grown up in a world where the Normans were no more than distant kings in England. In the Ireland of his youth, an especially bloody, age-old feud with the kings of North Munster, a region known as Thomond, had defined his perspective on life and the lives of generations of his ancestors. This feud was crucial to understanding how many in Munster reacted to the arrival of the Normans, so it's worth taking a closer look at it. Tensions between the McCarthys of Desmond, that's Diarmid's family, and the O'Briens, 
the ruling family of Thormund, were rooted way back in the 10th century. Now distant as this was, it still had a lot of resonance in 1177. For Dermot and the McCarthys, the O'Briens had robbed them of power. You see, the McCarthys were descendants of one of the greatest families in medieval Irish history, the one-time early medieval kings of Munster, the O'Gonacht of Cashel. At the height of their power, they had dominated the entire region. That was until the O'Briens had come along. In 908, Dermid's ancestors, the O'Gonacht, had suffered a catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Ballymoon. The reigning king, Cormac, and many of his dynasty had been killed. The family struggled in the following decades, facing one attack after another as chaos swept through Munster. In this maelstrom, a previously little heard of family, the Dalkosh, began to rise up in North Munster. By 980, led by their powerful king, Brian Baru, they were dominating the entire region, including Dermid's ancestors, what would become the McCarthy's. Brian Baru eventually became one of the most powerful kings in Ireland and his descendants took his name, calling themselves the O'Briens. In the following decades, the O'Briens' power increased as the McCarthy's faded and shrank back into Desmond or South Munster. In 1101, their demise was complete when an O'Brien king, Morkathoch, stripped them of their ancient fortress of the Rock of Cashel and gave it to the church. Naturally, this caused enmity and bitterness, which was nurtured by the blood of several generations who had been killed in what was an endless struggle between the McCarthys and the O'Briens, as they both tried to dominate each other. For example, Dermot, the king of Desmond in 1177, his own father Cormac had been assassinated by the O'Briens, who had hired two of his household guards to turn on him. You can only imagine how important then such a feud was to a man like Dermot. It was everything. Nothing compared to it. Except perhaps one other struggle that would also play a major role when the Normans arrived. An internal family dispute within Dermot's family, the McCarthys. Now Dermot, like almost every other single king in Gaelic Ireland, had to fight his way to the top to become king. All adult males whose grandfather had been king had the right to make a claim, so this led to constant battles and attempted coups. For a king to succeed, he would often have to exile, mutilate and even kill brothers, uncles and cousins along the way. Indeed, when Dermot's father had been assassinated by the O'Briens in 1138, his uncle, Dunica, took power and Dermot had to flee for his life. However, his uncle died being taken prisoner by the O'Briens in 1144 and Dermot grasped this opportunity with both hands becoming king. Even though he did succeed in dominating Desmond and engaging in a long war with the age-old enemy, the O'Briens, he was never free from challengers within his own family. In 1161, his cousin Donal rose up against him and Dermot responded by executing him. Three years later, in 1164, Donal's son, was executed as well. Such vicious family disputes were a way of life though in medieval Ireland and to succeed engaging in such fratricidal violence was just par for the course. Such feuds though were all-consuming and when the Normans arrived they dictated how Gaelic families in Munster would react. Their eye was not necessarily on repelling the Normans per se 
but more on looking to see if they could use the Normans to get ahead in these ancient feuds. This led to some highly unusual alliances in Munster when the Normans arrived, as we shall see next. The arrival of the Normans in Ireland in the late 1160s initially changed little in Munster. Dermot McCarthy, in an attempt to preserve his power, initially opposed them, an understandable move, no doubt spurred on by the fact that his bitter rival, the King of Thomond, Don O'Brien, was a brother-in-law to Strongbow's wife. However, with the arrival of King Henry II, with a massive army in 1171, Dermot changed his policy. Always focused on his bitter rival, Dermot feared Henry II might help Don O'Brien. So, he met the king and submitted to him, hoping to gain his protection. In the following years, Dermot generally maintained good relations with the Normans, no doubt buoyed on by the fact that his rival Don O'Brien rose up against them in 1174. Now this policy paid off for Dermot. In 1176, when he was deposed by his own son in yet another interminable family dispute, the Norman leader, Raymond de Gros, was on hand to intervene and restore him to power. By 1177, therefore, Dermot had shown guile and survived through a period that many other kings didn't. He had bent the knee when he needed and he had fought when he had needed. No doubt he had good reason to be hopeful for the future, given that he had been loyal to the Normans and had little reason to suspect that they would attack him. However, as we saw in the last episode, King Henry II had gathered some of the major Norman leaders at Oxford in England in May 1177 and decided on a new aggressive strategy in Ireland. There would be no reward for loyalty for Gaelic kings. Henry was now interested in wholesale conquest. Henry's logic was based on an increasingly long-term strategy where he was hoping someday to install his young son, John, as King of Ireland. To do this, John would need loyal supporters and in this context, Dermot could never really be trusted. So Henry granted the Kingdom of Desmond to Robert Fitzstephen and Milo de Cogan. However, while Dermot was to lose out, so too was his bitter rival, Donal O'Brien, as Thomond was granted to another Norman, Philip de Brioge. After Oxford, rather than conquer their new lands individually, Robert Fitzstephen, Philip de Brioge and Milo de Cogan joined their forces, agreeing to conquer Munster together as one army. In Munster, Dermot presumably initially had little idea that this army was being assembled. If this had been a modern invasion, he would have known instantaneously once Henry had granted the lands at Oxford. But in the 12th century, there was no Sky or Fox News to have 24-hour, round-the-clock countdown to war, so he probably hadn't a clue. Now initially, nothing happened. De Brioge, Fitzstephen and de Cogan didn't leave England for a few months. Raising troops and preparations for the mission took planning and they did not board ship until November 1177. Perhaps the first inkling Dermid may have had that something was about to happen was when the Norman fleet landed at Waterford. The disembarkation of hundreds of soldiers was worrying for all kings in the south of Ireland. But it didn't take long for the Norman intentions to become clear. Leaving Waterford, the Norman army pushed westward into Desmond through Lismore. While we might think this would trigger immediate resistance, it's important to remember 
the monster the people of the 12th century had grown up in, one of the violent feuds I mentioned earlier. These experiences had shaped people as they grew up and now shaped their responses to the Normans. In this context, for Diarmid, the prospect of mounting resistance to the invasion was easier said than done. He not only had to be concerned with the invaders, but also his internal family enemies and Don O'Brien in Thomond to his north. Time would prove he had good reason to be concerned. As the Norman army moved west from Waterford, they were guided by none other than Dermot's own relation, Murkertoch McCarthy, a man who was probably his first cousin. This might seem like the worst kind of treachery to us. Dermot was being stabbed in the back by his own relative. However, if you put yourself in Murkertoch's shoes in 1177, just for a moment, this might not seem like such a strange move. Murkertoch, like Dermot, was raised in a society where the highest achievement was to become king. No doubt many of his close kinsmen had been killed trying to do so. Worse still from Murkertoch, his line of the McCarthy family had not held the kingship in two generations, which meant that they would lose the right to make a claim if he or his brothers didn't rise to the top. There was a lot of weight on the man's shoulders. So, in a world where it meant everything to become king, Murkertoch saw the approaching Normans as a way for him to achieve this ultimate goal. With his own house already divided, Dermot McCarthy, however, soon faced another somewhat more predictable problem while he thought about what to do about the approaching Normans. Donal O'Brien, who clearly had no idea his own kingdom of Thomond was also part of the Norman war aim, swept over the frontier of Desmond, attacking McCarthy lands in their hour of desperation. Again, just like Dermot's treacherous relatives, before we rush to condemn Donal, it's worth putting ourselves in his shoes for just a minute. It would be a major mistake to think that Donal somehow shared some natural affinity with Dermot McCarthy because they were both Gaelic Irish kings. In fact, if anything, the opposite was the case. As we saw earlier, these men despised each other with a level of intense hatred that was unparalleled. Sure enough, neither had much love for the Normans, but such animosity paled in comparison to the depth of hostility they had for each other. Therefore, once the Normans attacked Dermot McCarthy from the west, Donal O'Brien's decision to take advantage of this was almost instinctive. However, the impact this would have was obviously huge. Faced with the Norman army being aided by his own relatives to the east and Donal O'Brien pouring over his border to the north, Dermot McCarthy had little chance of mounting any meaningful resistance and the Norman host successfully made its way to the town of Cork already ruled by the Norman governor, Richard of London. Dermot McCarthy now realised the writing was on the wall. He knew fighting would only see him deposed. This was intolerable. So, instead, he sued for peace with the Normans, but this would be a costly peace. In a dominant position, the army of Philip de Brioge, Robert Fitzstephen and Milo de Cogan forced Dermot to hand over vast tracts of territory. Milo de Cogan, took four cantreds of land to the west of Cork, while Robert Fitzstephen took three to the east of the settlement. While this might not sound like much, it amounted to tens and tens of thousands of acres. 
Diarmid was allowed to hold the remaining 24 cantreds in Desmond, but he had to pay Fitzstephen and the Cogan for the pleasure. The first step to dominating the southwest of Ireland had been achieved by the Normans, but that said, the conquest was by no means complete. The Normans had taken the Kingdom of Desmond in a relatively bloodless advance, but this did not mean there was no resentment. However, for the moment at least, in 1177, the Normans did not face any concerted threat and they were able to launch the second phase of their campaign. Fitzstephen had gotten his reward, as had Milo de Cogan, with lands in Desmond. Now the time for the reward of Philip de Brioge had come. This was, of course, Donal O'Brien's Kingdom of Thomond. In accordance with the agreement, de Brioge, Fitzstephen and de Cogan now took their joint army north to attack O'Brien in Thomond. Donal O'Brien, however, was in a very different position to his great rival, Dermot McCarthy. Although he probably didn't expect an attack so soon, he can only have known that at some point the Normans would invade his kingdom. He had repeatedly attacked them through 1175 and 1176. Nevertheless, the Norman advance into O'Brien's territory was not opposed and they headed for the town of Limerick. There they would be able to use the walled settlement as a safe base of operations to conquer the surrounding territory. The last Norman in Limerick had been Raymond Le Gros in 1176 and the town had been burned when he left. However, it seemed that Donal O'Brien had rebuilt it in the intervening year. Facing no major opposition until they arrived at Limerick, the Normans now faced the same situation that Raymond Le Gros had years earlier in that Limerick was one of the best defended towns in Ireland. Built on an island in the River Shannon, they would first have to wade through the river before they could mount an assault. Dangerous as this was, Raymond de Grow had proved it could be done. But in 1177, the citizens of Limerick did not wait for the Norman assault to begin. While Philip de Brioge, Robert Fitzstephen and Milo de Cogan strategised about how they would take the town, they suddenly found the rug pulled from beneath them when the settlement was set ablaze. The population, fleeing, decided the best defence was simply to destroy the fortification that the Normans so desperately wanted. This act had a dramatic impact on Philip de Brioge, the man who had been granted the Kingdom of Thomond. While Fitzstephen and de Cogan did offer to stay and help him build a fortification on the site of Limerick, the population's willingness to destroy their own town rattled him. It made him think twice about having to hold a castle there in future. Alone and far from other Norman help, he could well meet a gruesome end. Understandably, de Brioge decided he would withdraw. For Donal O'Brien, he was lucky, for the time being at least. Nevertheless, Gaelic Thomond was on borrowed time. The grant of King Henry II had been made. This was not something that would be revoked and the Normans would return. Nevertheless, by the end of what had been a moderately successful campaign, it was clear the Norman noose in Ireland was tightening. This was largely because of the inescapable tensions and feuds within Gaelic Ireland, tensions that existed in almost every kingdom. This did not augur well for the future. In Desmond, while they had not settled the land with colonists yet from England, and indeed would face staunch opposition in years to come, the Normans nevertheless now had a toehold. Indeed, while these events were unfolding in the southwest in 1177, in Mead, the Norman lord of the region, Hugh de Lacey, was illustrating what could be done 
from a similar toehold. Tune into the next episode when we look at Hugh Lacey's exploits as the Norman invasion intensifies. We'll also check in on John de Courcy in Ulster. Until next time, Sloan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 